Well, this week marks uh, our last week in a series called The Kingdom. We've been looking at Jesus's teachings on the kingdom of God, because during Epiphany, this is a time when we reflect on Jesus's teachings to the world. And everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus did, it can be summarized in one statement he made. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In our first week, we looked at what is the kingdom like? Uh, and we, we concluded it, it is a lot like its king. If you want to know what the kingdom is like, look to Jesus. Look at his life. Look at the people he touched, the people he spent time with, the people he tried to reach. But then in our second week, we talked about how the kingdom isn't just something we're supposed to gaze at. It's not supposed to just be a set of intellectual uh, truths that we hold. The kingdom requires a response. Jesus always calls people to repent and believe. And this week, our text uh, brings these two themes together, what the kingdom is like, how it requires a response. But then we also get a picture into uh, what the people of the kingdom are like. Uh, in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 24, we're going to see that the kingdom of God is best described as a banquet meal, which means that um, the kingdom of God is not like popular misconceptions. It is not this boring buzzkill place uh, where people eat that Philadelphia cream cheese. It is not um, people with wings and playing harps in the clouds with ethereal bodies. Uh, these are not the pictures that Jesus gives us. The picture he gives us is that of a celebration, that of a, a banquet with the best food and even the best wine. Uh, so as we explore this picture today, we're going to look at three things. The first thing we're going to look at is what the kingdom of God is not like. Because it's not like these mythological pictures we have, but it's also not like some of the more insidious pictures that people uh, push towards the kingdom. So what the kingdom is not like. And then we'll look at what the kingdom is like. And then we'll look at uh, what it is like to sit at the table at God's banquet. So what it's not like, what it's like, and what it's like to sit at the table. Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 14. Uh, before we get into verse 12, uh, we need to look at the context um, Jesus, in the beginning of this chapter, was invited to dinner with a ruler of the Pharisees. And this happened on the Sabbath. And we're told in verse 2 uh, that he was invited and they were watching him carefully. And the first thing Jesus does at this dinner is heal a man, which happens on the Sabbath. And we talked about this last week, how that is so controversial. Uh, the Pharisees would already be offended. And right after doing that, Jesus then looks at everyone and he says, you know how you got here and you tried to fight for the best seats at the table so you have the places of honor? Yeah, you should stop doing that. Uh, so we are, uh, in verse 12, entering into the middle of a dinner party that has become very awkward. And now Jesus is looking to the ruler of the Pharisees, the man who invited him, and he speaks to him. Verse 12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who were reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So Jesus decides to now address their cultural practices of how they invite people to dinner. The, the Pharisees were incredibly selective in sending out their dinner invitations. 
Uh, they were in the practice of only inviting people who could repay the favor. And what is at play here is a deeper cultural issue. This was a way of maintaining the status quo. This was a way of determining who was in and who was out. If you wanted to remain in the place of the elite, you invited other elites and hoped that they would invite you back. You created your in-group, which made this uh, practice by nature one of discrimination, one of exclusion. It maintained social boundaries and distinctions, but it also had a spiritual component to it too. It maintained spiritual distinctions of who was in and out. If you were invited to dine with the Pharisees, if you were invited into their sect of Judaism, you were actually in with God. These guys have God figured out. And if you weren't in with them, you were out with God. So if your body was broken, you weren't invited because you're seen as unclean. If you were a, uh, a sinner, as we understand it, to be the actions of sin, you weren't welcome. And so the Pharisees actually played a key role in helping people know that they were not welcomed by God as well. Uh, if, if we look at these practices then, what Jesus is doing is challenging these, these practices at the heart of them. He's challenging them to step out of a system based off of rewards, out of a system of inviting people who can only repay you, and to take the risk by stepping into a way of living where you only invite people who can't repay you, where you check your motives, where you suddenly see that this is not about uh, being repaid, but it's about fellowship. And Jesus says, if you do this, you don't have to worry. You'll be blessed. You'll be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. And this gets someone's attention. Verse 16, a guy pipes up and he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, eating bread in the kingdom of God, this, uh, this is a loaded term to a Jewish audience. This would be full of expectations of a future banquet that God is going to set when his Messiah finally establishes the kingdom. It points to our first reading this morning, uh, Isaiah chapter 25 uh, it's the banquet feast of the Messiah, and God will have swallowed up death. He will have wiped away every tear, and we're told that in, after doing that, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food filled with marrow, and aged wine well-refined. You'll notice that the food and the wine are, are doubled up. The, Isaiah really wants to stress that this will be the best meal that anyone has ever had. This will be a celebration. And so the person in verse 16 that's saying, blessed are the people who will partake of this future banquet, um, carries uh, some loaded presuppositions. The question is, well, who will be at this banquet? Who will be blessed? Who, who are these people? The Pharisees, when we look at some of the other documents in the first century, they reinter reinterpreted this part of Isaiah. They would say, well, surely it can't be all peoples. Surely what Isaiah means is that it's for the people who kept the laws of God, for the people who never erred, for the people who are obedient to the end. Um, surely all people doesn't include the sinners and the outcasts and the broken. Their, their mind was that this banquet would be a reward for their obedience that God would owe them a seat at the table. And so in the Pharisees' minds, this kingdom banquet would function a lot like their dinner parties. 
The people at the banquet would look a lot like them and the people at the banquet would act a lot like them. It would be selective, it would be exclusive, it would be discriminating and only for the obedient few, certainly not for the many. And now before we're too hard on the poor Pharisees, because they often get a bad rap in scripture, I don't think this is a far stretch for us. I think for the most part, all of us prefer things uh, that we like or things that look like us. When I was uh, in my band days, I divided the world into two categories for five years of my life, musicians and not musicians. And I couldn't fathom how anyone in the world, like you can do anything in the world, why wouldn't you choose playing music? I couldn't wrap my head around why someone would do anything else. It's a narrow worldview, I know. Um, And while I was working towards this goal of becoming like an established musician, putting out albums, touring, uh, I had a job at a grocery store. And in my mind, I was above the work. I was gracing them with my presence. And it was simply a means to an end while I wasn't on the road. And this store was actually locally owned by a guy named Jim. He was, he was one of the nicest people I think I've ever met. He was really humble. He was really gentle. He was hardworking. And Jim, he always talked about his two kids. He loved them so much. And he worked tirelessly to provide for them. And you could see that this man was deeply stressed. He talked about how his mortgage was hard to pay, how he he hated how he had to be at work away from his kids, but he was relentlessly working for his kids. And it was amazing. And despite the baggage that he carried in his own life, he was always gracious to people, always kind to people, and very supportive of me. He really liked my goals and my dreams, and he would let me take time off. He'd let me go away um, at extended periods of time to go on tour. Uh, He was kind. And frankly, I was the worst grocer ever. Uh, I was terrible at stocking shelves. I could not figure out for the life of me how to place an order for food. I could never predict how much milk was going to sell or how many eggs were going to sell. And and Jim, he would always encourage me, say, you can can get this. I believe in you. You can do this. And the day finally came that Jim went on a two-week vacation that his family had been saving for for years. And he said, look, Alistair, you're in charge. You've got to take care of the grocery store. Worst plan ever. By the time Jim got back, it looked like the zombie apocalypse must have happened. Like the shelves were empty and disheveled. The grocery store was falling apart. And understandably, Jim fired me. Uh, To any reasonable adult, like any reasonable uh, adult, Jim made the right decision, didn't he? Looking back on it now with like, I don't know, 12 years of, of getting over it. Like he made the right decision. But to the kid who divided the world into musicians and not musicians, to the kid who divided the world into you only matter if you're a musician and the rest of people are just fans that you need to win over, this was a serious offense. Jim had shamed me and had tried to bring me down to his level. And so I said to Jim, you know what, Jim? The last thing I want to settle for is a pathetic life like yours. And then I stormed out. I regret saying that so deeply. I sincerely do. And you should know I had at least enough common sense back then to go back the next day and apologize. Didn't get me my job back. But we get this. Like this is an extreme case. But it points to how we tend to categorize the world and people by who's in and who's out. And sometimes it gets vicious. For me... Being in was a musician and being out was anything else. And to keep Jim out, I had to shame him. It might be more subtle. It might be 
public school or homeschool? Who's in, who's out? Your hobby, whatever it is, versus every other hobby. Uh, hipster clothing versus being clean. Obviously, I drew my line in the sand there, but <laughs> it can get more insidious. Your skin color versus every other skin color. Your political party versus every other political party. We delineate lines of who is in and who is out. We still do this. And it's not just about who is out. It's also about who we can invite in to leverage ourselves up. It's about having the right friends who make us look better or making friends with enough rich people that we start to have more spheres of influence. It's about inviting people in so that our social status can be elevated and ride upon theirs as well. You matter more by the people you hang out with. So this is what the Pharisees' practices are like. Who's in, who's out. But this is not what the kingdom of God is like. It's not about who's in and who's out, who can I sit beside to make me better. A very literal reading of this passage, people would say, you know what, I'm never going to family dinner again. I'm only going to invite the poor. And it would completely miss the point. Jesus isn't about telling you not to eat dinner with your parents anymore. He's about challenging the ways in which we construct who is in and out and living on a reward-based system. So you can have your family dinners, just be open to bringing along a person that might not fit initially. So in response to the Pharisees, in response really to the human tendency uh, to dehumanize one another by creating these distinctions, Jesus tells a parable. And in doing so, he challenges the current table that he's at and their practices. But he also challenges their picture of what this kingdom banquet will look like. Look at verse 16. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five oxen of yoke uh, or five yoke of oxen, whatever the difference. And I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Imagine if you're having a dinner party for an anniversary, maybe it's a key milestone birthday, and you've been very selective about who you want to invite. You've only invited your best friends or the people you really want there. There's none of those like peripheral B-level friends. And you've handpicked everyone. And this is a classy party, so you're not using Evite. You actually mailed out invitations. And the, the day has come, the guests arrive, they're in your living room, and the dinner is still cooking. And now imagine the dinner's ready, and you say, hey, it's time to move into the dining room, from the living room, and people start making excuses. Oh, I, uh, I just bought a house, and I haven't inspected it or seen it, so I need to go see that right now. Oh, I just went and bought five used cars, and I didn't take them to a mechanic to get inspected, so I need to go see them right now. Or, oh, I'm married. <laughs> you would know, without a shadow of a doubt, that these were terrible excuses. They're thinly veiled lies at best, and no one buys a house before having it inspected. No one um, buys a car before checking it out first. No one doesn't go to an event because they're married. Okay, no one would leave the middle of a dinner party because they're married, right? Like, these are the sort of excuses being given to the man. This is what's happening in the parable. These are ludicrous excuses. 
to back out of the party at the point of the announcement that, come, everything is now ready, would have been as out of the ordinary as leaving a dinner party just as the dinner is served. A very, very good excuse would be needed. A, like, I'm going to the hospital because my name's Mike Chase and I ate a peanut. Uh, Mike's allergic to nuts. Like that, good reason. Uh, I need to go home and rewatch season three, episode 14 of Friends. Not such a believable reason to leave a party. You see, in their time, in their culture, their space, um, to do this, to reject an invitation after accepting it, was actually a way to publicly shame and publicly insult the person. And it was more of that. It was more than that, too. It was a way to oust someone from a position of honor and to force them into a position of shame. It was a way to remove them from that social circle. And we get this. I remember walking the long halls of my elementary school. I used to do this in, in recess when I was in the fifth grade because I was convinced that I would one day find a secret passage. And I would walk these halls, and one day I found my sister and a friend, a friend of hers, she was in the seventh grade, uh, tucked away in, the, in, in, a, in a nook of the hall, and she was crying. And so, like a good little brother, I went over and I said, what's wrong, Nadine? And she was crying so hard, her friend said, um, everyone in the class signed a petition to tell Nadine that they don't like her. And like a good little brother, I was like, okay, and walked away, got out of there, terrible little brother. But Children that personified to the nth degree how we delineate in and out, what we will do, how far we will go, how we will conspire to oust people even. And we're fooling ourselves if we think as adults that we've stopped this behavior of, of saying who's in or out. We've just gotten sneakier at it. We've just gotten more subtle at it, but it's still there. So in the parable, the man putting on this dinner He's embodying the practices of the Pharisees. He's initially very selective in his invitations. He's working in this reward-based system. But suddenly, he finds himself pushed out. It's backfired. He's now on the outside. He's publicly shamed and insulted. The system has betrayed him. Jesus continues in verse 21. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and there's still more room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. This, this man in the parable, he's understandably angry about what happened. But rather than retaliate, rather than pour his anger out in some way, what he does is remarkable. He actually embraces his new status as an outsider. He says, if I'm going to be an outsider, then I will invite the outsiders. I will embrace my new status by embracing those who've always been left out. I'll, I'll invite in the ones who can never repay. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, from the streets, the lanes, the cities, um, the highways, and the hedges. In other words, very broken people from culturally broken places. The servant is even commanded to compel people to come in because he is going so far out of the city to people that would be so broken, people who would know that they are not welcome at this master's place. They would see the invitation um, as a farce. They would think that the master wants to have uh, a token poor person to show how he's good. But the master says, no, compel them because this is about feasting with me. This isn't about show and this is definitely not about reward. There's no pretext. 
Then Jesus ends the parable in verse 24. He says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. We have to remember, this whole parable, Jesus says in response to the man who says, Blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom. The vision then that Jesus sketches out of this banquet is vastly different than the vision the Pharisees held of this eternal banquet. And it would force the Pharisees to come to terms with two theological realities. First, the kingdom banquet is not a place of exclusion. It is not a place of selection based on preference. It is not a place of discrimination. The kingdom banquet is uncomfortably undiscriminating. It's not closed off to anyone. It doesn't show partiality. And the invitation is radically open and far-reaching. The second thing they'd have to come to terms with is that this invitation to the banquet is not based on whether one deserves it or not. That it doesn't even come close to operating within their system of reward. God invites people who could never pay him back. And most of all, he invites people who never deserve it. God never owes someone an invitation to his kingdom. But nonetheless, he invites people who are all all sorts of brokenness um, riddled and coming from all sorts of broken places. People who can never deserve the invitation, but he graciously gives it. What this means for the Pharisees then is that the kingdom banquet will not look like them. It won't act like them. It won't be like the practices they've known. When Isaiah prophesied that God has set the table for all peoples, he really meant all peoples. So what's Jesus doing with this parable? He has a big picture in mind and he has the current picture in mind. In the big picture, he's saying, I'm the host of this banquet. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one setting the table. And indeed, the table is ready and I'm the one inviting people in. And how you respond to me will determine whether or not you have a seat at the table. It won't be if you deserve it. It won't be if you've worked so hard. It won't be if you're such a great person. It will be if you responded to me. And the implication then for the the Pharisees is that they're in danger of rejecting the invitation. They have Jesus over to examine him. They're curious about him. They're, They're skeptical about him. They have their reasons for not liking Jesus. They have their excuses for not really dining with him. Oh, he heals on the Sabbath, or he doesn't keep the law exactly the way we want, or we don't really know where he's from. But underneath all of those excuses are truly a rejection of who he is. But in the current picture that Jesus is addressing, he's inviting the Pharisees to actually repent of their table practices because they're contrary to the practices of the kingdom of God. Which means if the Pharisees actually repent, it means they have to start inviting people into their lives and into their homes that they had been excluding. Because when they finally get to the the eternal banquet, they'll be sitting beside those people anyways. Now this sounds beautiful, right? In theory. But in practice, this is incredibly hard. We can handle the idea of a banquet with all our closest friends, with the family members that we get along with, uh, with people we look up to, people we admire. We We can conceive of a banquet like that. But what about a banquet not only filled with people different than us, but people we'd rather not invite? What about a banquet full of people that make us uncomfortable? Dallas Willard, he was one of the greatest Christian philosophers of the past century. Uh, He says, I'm thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. 
But standing it may prove to be a more difficult matter than we think. The fires in heaven may be hotter than those in the other place. The fires of heaven may be hotter than the fires of hell. How's this so? At the kingdom's great banquet, what if, what if you find yourself sitting beside someone you don't want to sit beside? What if it's just because you don't like the way they eat or because they talk with their mouth full or they keep hogging a dish that you really want to try? But what if you get placed beside someone of a different race or language or background that you've never liked? What if you get placed at the spot of the table where all the prostitutes and the drug addicts are sitting? What if you get put at a spot of the table where the people are so poor that their clothes are falling apart? Or what if you get placed at a table with all the rich people, the politicians, the swindlers, the financial people, the people you call oppressors? What if you have to sit beside the drug dealer or the pimp? Worse, what if you have to sit beside the high school bully who terrorized you, the family member who abandoned you, the boss who overworked you, the friend who betrayed you? What if the table is full of people who damaged you in some way? But we can press this further still. What if you are the person that someone doesn't want at the banquet? What if my sister has to sit beside the people who made that petition? What if Jim has to sit beside me? What if you're the person that makes someone else uncomfortable because of the way that you hurt them in this life? Now, of course, I'm speaking hypothetically, but what if we arrive in the kingdom of God carrying the same baggage that we carry now? Could we stand the fires of heaven that must refine us? How, other, how else would we come to terms with those who are sitting around us? How do we come to terms with that? But I think the real question is this. Why would Jesus even sit with us in the midst of this kingdom banquet? When we arrive at eternity's shores, when we finally are invited into this great celebration and we sit down at the table, I don't think that we're going to be noticing other people's sins or remembering the mistakes or, or looking at how people cause pain or hurt in one way or another. I think we are going to be enamored with the presence of Jesus and how he's a God who dines with us. How Jesus sits with us despite how many times and how many different ways that we made excuses not to dine with him. I can't dine with you, Jesus, because I'm too busy with my homework or my job or my family. I can't dine with you, Jesus, because, well, I have that thing I want to do, that party or the to-do list. I can't dine with you, Jesus, because really, I don't trust you. I want to marry who I want to marry. I want to be friends with who I want to be friends with. I want to live life the way I want to live it. I can't dine with you, Jesus, because my life hasn't unfolded the way that I wanted. I'm not happy with you about that. It's taken turns that I would have never wanted, and it seems like you don't even care. I can't dine with you, Jesus. We all say it in some way or another. We all reject the invitation in some way or another. And yet, on this side of eternity, Jesus never stops inviting us. Despite how many times we've shamed him, despite how many times we've rejected him or run away from him or ignored him or flat out refused to even look at him, Jesus invites us to feast with him because Jesus knows that we are fundamentally hungry people. 
and that we keep going to places that can never fill us, that we keep going to places that we think we want, but just leave us feeling empty and dry. And so Jesus keeps inviting us to the true feast, to the true place where you can actually be filled. So when we arrive at this banquet, we will be enamored with the one who never stopped pursuing us. That's what I love about this parable. It gives us a picture into the heart of God that Jesus will pursue you uh, by running into the town and the city, running to the edges of the city, running into the slums. Jesus is the type of God that will find you in the kitchen or in the bar, in your workplace or at home. He will find you in the place that you don't want to be found. This is the type of God that we worship, a God who pursues us and the one who will go as far as to compel us to come into the kingdom, but not force us. It's just a way of God illustrating how desperately um, he wants to reconcile you because how much you're worth to him and how much he was willing to pay. When we arrive in eternity's shores, we will be enamored with the invitation of the one that we accepted. He is the one who was rejected by us, but was ultimately rejected for us so that we can be forgiven. It was through the cross that Jesus said, you know what? I'll take it on so you can be accepted. We could put it this way. Jesus went through the flames of hell so you can pass through the flames of heaven. That's what took place on the cross. Which means this, the kingdom uh, banquet, the people sitting at the table, they will look very different, but they won't be enemies. We will sit together at the table as undeserving friends. None of us will deserve to be at the table, but all of us will have been covered by God's grace. All of us will have been forgiven for all that we have done. All of us will be made new. As Paul says, Jesus promises that uh, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So the question is, will you accept the invitation to feast at this table of undeserving friends? Will you accept the invitation not into a a dull and drab heaven of floating in clouds, but the, the invitation into the greatest celebration that you can think of? Think of the best party you've been into your life, but remove the gossip that happened over in that corner. Remove the couple fighting in the bedroom. Remove the the people who didn't show up that you really want to show up. Take the best moments of human celebration that you have known, the moments that truly seem to give us a picture into love, a picture into hope, a picture into joy. Take that sort of celebration and you've just got a small speck of the joy of God's table that God's inviting you into, that God's freely offering you. God wants to invite you into eternal joy and celebration. He wants to sit down and eat with you and talk to you and enjoy you. The table, Jesus says, is set. The welcome is open. Looking back at the scripture and where we are in history, we can see that God has been sending his servants into the world to invite people to come in, to compel people to come in. And the only reason someone won't end up in the kingdom of God is because they reject the invitation. So will you accept the invitation? And if you accept the invitation, it also means accepting the guest list too. But that's okay. 
Because for every sin that makes us uncomfortable in the kingdom of God, for every person that seemed like they were too far gone, every person just gives us a picture into how great God's grace really is. Where sin is present, grace abounds all the more on this side of eternity. When we get on that side, we will see just how strong and how great God's grace really was to us. And finally, as the parable shows us, those who accept the invitation also become the invitation. We're all called to go out and to let the grace that's been given to us flow out of us and into other people's lives. We're all called to start welcoming people without preference uh, to Christ's table. But this isn't something we have to try or work at doing. This is something that becomes a natural result of when you understand just how much God has welcomed you. And as you understand how Christ has welcomed you with open arms, exactly as you are, where you are, not some future version of yourself, it grips you and you can begin to welcome people in the same way.